I'm so grateful to be able to study Romans with you guys. I've gotten so much out of this book. Uh, and uh, the conversations that we've had and the, the analysis of the, of the scriptures, in my opinion, has been so beneficial for me. And in the beginning of chapter 8, you recall that Paul had made a pretty bold statement. Um, he said, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You, you remember that? And we kind of spent the chapter 8 in talking about whether you live by the flesh or you live by the Spirit. And to live by the flesh is death. And to live by the Spirit is life. And we talked about what does it mean to live by the Spirit and what, what is the Spirit's role uh, and, and the difference between the natural man and the spiritual man. And so we even talked about how the Spirit helps us in our weakness, uh, about how we should pray. So there's this, there's this thing within us, there's this thing behind the natural world that exists where the Holy Spirit is helping us communicate with God because our finite minds and our fragile bodies uh, sometimes find it difficult to know what to pray for and how to pray. And so we get to verse 31. And you recall that he has said God demonstrates his love and that he gave his son for us while we were his enemies. And then the spirit is working for our benefit. And he says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Indeed, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, freely give us all things? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is the one who will condemn? Christ is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who also is interceding for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will trouble, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we encounter death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we have complete victory through him who loved us. He predestined us to the image of his son. He offered his son. His son speaks on our behalf. The spirit speaks on our behalf. What conclusion do you make from this? If God is for us, who can be against us. It's incredible. We weren't just forgiven. God puts into motion all of these things to our benefit. The son who's experienced life like we have, speaking to God on our behalf, being the mercy seat, the propitiation for our sins, the spirit helping us communicate with God. We've been given everything like a child. We've been adopted like a child. And so in, in last class, we kind of talked about some of Paul's conclusion at the end of this chapter in your own words. What's more important to me is how is this a good tool for those that maybe don't understand the Bible? We talked about how when Paul mentioned that there's this internal conflict that he feels and that, you know, when you have, you try to do the right thing and you end up not doing the right thing. And we, we, that, we took that as kind of a universal thing. What about this? How do you think this would appeal uh, to those in the world? Uh, and, and before we kind of talk about that, you know, we had been talking, Paul had been talking quite often prior to this about the suffering that you might endure and the suffering, whether it's just being in this corrupt life 
or specifically suffering because of your beliefs, what an answer to give. Because he specifically calls out some of the suffering. The sword. Right? Uh, and um, and we'll, we'll kind of conclude here with verse uh, 38 in just a moment. But distress or persecution or famine or nakedness. Because as it is written, we're like lambs to the slaughter. But he says, no, in all these things we have complete victory through him. For me, when I think about how this might appeal to the world, this is something um, something that, and I hate to use this term, but psychological, psychologically appealing. There is a chance for victory, no matter what. Right? No matter how bad this life is, how, how, how we may fail, if we have faith in Jesus Christ, and if we live by the Spirit, I love that term, in all these things, we will be the ones to be victorious. And so, as I think about this, to me, Romans chapter 8, and this kind of discussion... We kind of talked last class about, you know, we were kind of talking about the Jews and the Gentiles, and we actually kind of get back to that question tonight. But he kind of takes this tangential thought and just fleshes it out completely. And what is it? What is that for? Because this is the universal message. This is what should appeal to all individuals uh, in the sense that if God is for us, who can be against us? Tommy? A couple of things. Uh, first of all, in verse 32, about God not sparing his own son is an echo of Genesis 22 and Abraham not sparing his son. Mm-hmm. And uh, as Abraham not sparing his son reflects the greater sacrifice of God giving his son. But specifically, in verse 36, when he quotes, and you alluded to to a month ago, when he quotes Psalm 34, excuse me, Psalm 24, verses, verse 22, well, what strikes me in context about that, Jesse, Psalm 44 is really a sad song, a national event, pouring out their grief, pouring out their pain, and yet that statement about how mourning and lamenting, how we are like sheep led to the slaughter, is taken in Romans 8 and made a statement of victory. Yeah, yeah. And I think it shows us how the death and resurrection has transformed even passages that seem full of mourning and grief into a passage of hope very cool so you, you're kind of looking at this as an answer to that lament right it's it's the yeah, it, that, that's really incredible because right as you look at the state you look at this lament and then it turns around and says well in that same vein we are now victorious and all of these things we have been made victorious right there is an answer to all of this very good I like that and I hadn't really put that together Uh, So we now have complete victory. Have you ever met anyone um, that you were just, you highly respect or you're very impressed by? Maybe they have an excellent work ethic 
or, or maybe they just, you know, they're just very disciplined. Um, and you're like, man, how did, how did you get like that? Like, what does it take to, how, how do you live your life? And I sometimes look at what Paul endured and go, how in the world did you keep going? Like, um, and, and you notice that uh, here and, and in chapter 9, he, it's kind of funny how he writes sometimes where he's purposely putting some additional expression. We'll kind of look at that. But from 2 Corinthians 11, he kind of catalogs all of the suffering that he has been through. Um, I have worked much harder than they, and he's talking about people that brag, right? And he's like, well, if anyone wants to get into a bragging fight, I can brag. And then right there, he's like, I'm talking like a crazy person, which I kind of find funny. You see him like injecting a lot of his emotion while he's writing, but he's like, I've worked much harder than they. I've been in prison more often. I have been hurt in more beatings. I have been near death many times. Five times the Jews have given me their punishment of 39 lashes with a whip. Five times. I didn't I didn't realize that. Three different times I was beaten with rods. One time I was almost stoned to death. Three times I was in ships that wrecked, and one of those times I spent a night in, uh, and a day in the sea. I have gone on many travels and have been in danger from rivers, thieves, my own people, the Jews, and those who are not Jews. I have been in danger in cities, in places where no one lives, and on the sea. I have been in danger with false Christians. I have done hard and tiring work. And many times I did not sleep. I have been hungry and thirsty. And many times I have been without food. I have been cold and without clothes. Besides all this, there is on me every day the load of my concern for all the churches. How? How do you live a life continuously against those odds? Verse 38, For I am convinced... That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor heavenly rulers, nor things that are present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. It wasn't as if Paul didn't feel pain. It wasn't as if Paul didn't experience anxiety. He talks about the anxiety here. He talks about the hunger. He talks about the sorrow. It's like, not like he was able to become numb to those things. But it was because he was convinced that none of that stuff would interfere with his relationship with God. He would always have the love of God with him. And to me, that takes, takes you back to verse 18. For I consider that our present sufferings cannot even be compared to the coming glory that will be revealed in us. So he builds this huge argument, right? And and he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Nothing in creation, nothing can interfere with my relationship with God. That's incredible. And that's what, that's the spirit changing someone's life and the way that they respond to things the way that they react to things, and the way that they handle things. Um, and it comes down to faith in Jesus Christ. He's making this argument over and over and over again, and continues to build on it. It's, he recognizes God's love through it all. Um, and he also recognized that there is a, a glory coming to us uh, that won't even compare to the worst life that you can live. 
uh, here. Okay. Any questions or comments before we move on to chapter 9? Chapter 9, kind of, I've done this before, it's kind of like where someone asks you a question, and during your explanation, you like take a tangent, and you really flesh that out, and 30 minutes later, you're like, all right, back to the question that you originally answered me, or asked me. And that's kind of what he's doing, because now we kind of get into, back to the, the concept of, of Jews and Gentiles, at least for the purposes of this discussion. He kind of normalizes that argument, right? as we're kind of building up to this, but then we get into chapter nine, and let's go ahead and read verses one through five. I, there's quite a bit to read here. I don't know if we'll get uh, through all of chapter nine, but I may ask for volunteers in a little bit to read. I'll go ahead and read the first five verses um, in chapter nine. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying, for my conscience assures me in the Holy Spirit I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that my, I myself were accursed, cut off from Christ for the sake of my people. Remember all of these things that he just talked about, how close that he felt to Jesus, and, and how nothing can interfere with his relationship with God through Christ Jesus? Well, I wish I were accursed, cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, my fellow countrymen who are Israelites. To, the, to them belong the adoptions of sons, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from them, by human descent, came the Christ. All of these incredible things happened in the nation of Israel. Uh, uh, by human descent came the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So... Um, why, why is Paul so, so sad here? I guess I'm, I, sad is the very wrong term because you see how he wishes that he could be cut off from Christ. I got two, uh, Brad and then Bob, uh, up here as well. So I was going to ask this question, maybe it would be um, relevant here, but so at the end of chapter 8, the things that don't separate us from the love of God. Um, my, my question was, is that, uh, is that salvation? Nothing can cut us off from the salvation that we have, or is that from the love of God? And I'm kind of thinking, like, the, uh, the prodigal son, the father never stopped loving his son, even though the son had left um, and was lost um, and had wandered away. And so I wonder how much... Um, Maybe what aspects is Paul speaking of here that doesn't separate us from the love of God? Um, is that is he talking about salvation and relationship there, or is maybe moving on to that chapter nine? Um, my first inclination is to look back at verse 31. You know, if God is for us, who can be against us, the victors? And what does that entail? It means being in a relationship with God and that kind of thing. Um, at the same time, I, I think it's a legitimate question, Brad, because, and we, we could skip forward to like question number six, because question number six was a little bit of a throwaway. And it was really just to make a point. If God loves, loves everyone, why doesn't he save everyone? Right? There's some conditions there. I mean, it is true that he loves everyone, um, but you know, he, he's certainly not going to save everyone. Uh, my, my, and if 
other people please chime in, but my instinct is to say, because he opened this with, you know, if God is for us, who can be against us, it kind of, kind of drives down the, the road of a relationship with him. But certainly, in even the, the other alternative is very true as well. God's love is everlasting and is always available and always open, right, in that same sense that can't be taken away. I, I like that too. I like both of those, yeah. I've, I've kind of had the same question, uh, but when I look at, the, at that list, it, those, all those things kind of seem to be kind of external. Um, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sore, kind of things that are outside. Yeah. Um, kind of outside forces that are against you, that, that God will overcome those things. I don't. I guess I don't see the kind of the internal struggle like like sin. Um, right. When you think about like Romans chapter six, uh, talking about we need to cut off sin and uh, that sin should be um, crucified. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Um, it just seems like this list is kind of an external. I, good point. There is an emphasis right here. And really the conversation started with the suffering, right, that, that people would endure. And you recall back in that time for a couple of hundred years what were happening to Christians. I mean, you, you look at the book of Revelations and Christians were crying out, like, when are you going to avenge us? Because they're sitting under the, you know, the altar and that kind of thing. So certainly from a physical standpoint, absolutely. This is pointed out. And when you look at Paul's life, it's a good example of someone continuing to progress um, undaunted by all of those physical those physical things you had had a comment i I apologize okay yeah that's okay we we did a little rewind there yeah i was just going to make a statement about question number two why it's called so sad it appears to me that he's grieving because so many of his brethren were rejecting Christ. Yes. Rejecting yeah. Messiah. Yeah. And I think this is a, a noble and unbelievable statement. Right. About being willing to sacrifice his own eternity. Yes. For, for the benefit of this country. Uh, that, that, that one strikes uh, cause in us as to how much he cares for his people and how he grieved for them. Yes. Yeah, I totally agree that it's a profound statement to be able to say, I wish myself accursed from Christ. And he lists, remember, he studied at the feet of the male, right? Like he was a Jew of the Jews in that sense. And yet he wishes that he could spiritually take their place. Bold statement, but it, I think it drives uh, a point. The last verses in chapter 8, and question 2, and question 6, all really point to the same idea. God so loved us that he did absolutely everything that was needed in order to make us right with him. And uh, God loves everyone. Why doesn't he save everyone? He made man a free moral agent. He gave man a choice. You obey or 
choice. And, and so there's nothing that can take that love and what God has done for us away from us except our own choice. Yes. Yeah. And so why is Paul so sad? His brethren are making the wrong choice. Yeah. And why doesn't God save everyone? Because we're making the wrong choice. Very good. That kind of too goes back, Brad, maybe him opening up this discussion like that it's always available. And, you know, we're, we're talking to a congregation where there are Jews. Remember, like, to kind of put this back into context of why there might be conflict. I mean, a lot of Pharisees became Christians, right? Uh, but the problem is, well, we're Christians now, but we still think the Gentiles should live like a Jew, you know, in order to be saved, right? There's, there's like some, some uh, mismatch in, in what is going on and what truly saved them. So kind of circling back, I do, Bob, uh, you tied that very well together because that's really the focus of this chapter. And it talks about it being available and like not even physical distress can kind of take it away from you. However, now I'm really sad because there is my, my countrymen, you know, don't have this. Even though the, the love is available, they don't have that relationship. They don't have that safety. Why? Because they're looking through, for salvation through the law and not through Jesus Christ. Um, and so uh, he basically has to tell the Jews there at Rome, there's a hard truth to be had, isn't there? Um, that, uh, you know, um, Israel's rejection means that they're, they're cut off. Uh, and he is so grieved by this that he wished himself cut off from Christ in their stead. Noble, profound, like what an incredible statement uh, to make. So he has to tell the Jews in Rome a hard truth. Uh, and this is what we're, the, the, the real truth that we're about to talk about is that not all Jews were true Jews. So as you look and as we're about to read, there seems to be an indication that Paul was really expecting quite a bit of pushback from the argument he's about to make. And if you look at 9 and 10 and 11, it has the most quoted scripture throughout the book. So he's going to have to build a theological argument over many, many scriptures. Um, and I, as I was thinking this, you know, I've told you guys a number of times, like, the context of how, like, the gospel to them meant the good news and not necessarily the New Testament, like the way that I grew up, you know, thinking of what the gospel was. The way that the context for learning Christ to them was the Old Testament. Right? Like the context for me learning about Christ is the New Testament. But the context for them learning about Christ was the Old Testament. My brain kind of blew up a little bit, right? Because I, I never made that connection when I was younger. Once again, because those things were so, so different. So, um, let's continue on. We're going to read 6 through 13. Um, Tommy, are you there? Are you in Romans uh, 9, 6 through 13? Would you mind reading that for us? But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, not, that is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, 
that the children of promise are regarded as descendants. But this is the word of promise, and at this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. Not only this, but there was Rebecca also. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for the, 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 for the twins were not yet born and had not yet done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob, I have loved, but Esau, I have. Very good. Thank you for reading that. I appreciate it. So um, he starts to build this argument. And he starts to look at Old Testament examples and try, try to build his case. And what is the case? What is the, 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 the uh, you know, the principle that he's arguing is that, well, if you were a Jew, then what did that mean for you spiritually? You were saved, right? Like if you're a Jew... You're saved. Like, that's, that's how they took this. And Paul starts to make an argument, well, not even all Jews are true Jews, if you will. And, and, he, and we start to look at some examples there. Yeah. And, and again, something like this, we're looking at one email and trying to figure out what he's responding to. Yes. Via the other email. But it seems like the idea in Romans 9 through 11, these are profound chapters. If Jesus is the promised Jewish Messiah, yeah. why didn't all the Jews accept it? Yes. And I think he's showing by the illustrations he uses, Abraham and two sons, mm-hmm. Israel and Isaac, the blessings come through Isaac. Jacob had two sons, excuse me, Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau, the blessings come through Jacob. That always Israel has been a remnant within a remnant. Yes. And, and I think he's showing that just like it was in these Old Testament illustrations, so it is, so it is today. But, but the key, you know, to try to figure out that argument and what he's answering. Yes. Yes. And you'll see, you'll notice throughout the, the and even at the 10, he's answering either questions that he knows are going to be asked, right, in, in this kind of philosophical manner, or questions that have been raised, or questions that have been asked him, right, like he's, he makes an argument, and he's like, well, you're probably going to say this, and then what I would say to that is this, and you're probably going to answer that with this, right, he's like walking down this ladder uh, of, uh, of logic, if you will, to kind of make his point, point. and so it's very, very good, Tommy, that you pointed that out, and so, you know, he basically, so what did it mean to be truly Israel, Right? As we read through that, and he's like, um, not, not all that are descended from Israel are truly Israel. Remember what Israel means, right? It's the special called out people, the God's own special people. And he's saying, just because you're descended from, from Israel doesn't make you God's chosen people. What does make you God's true Israel? What is the argument that he's making? As Tommy pointed out, there were two sons. You guys remember the story of Ishmael? It's a really cool story. If you don't remember it, go back and and read it, right? Like, God had made a promise, and it was taken (laughs) God so long. We got another another hand up here. Um, Yes. 
Yeah. You're not wrapped up in the faith and the promise. And sitting in America, there's uh, no other way I give you my word, I give you my guarantee. Yeah. And they've lost that, that part of the promise. He literally gets the word of the flesh, so that's the promise, that's the guarantee that's being issued. And the, the blindness that's occurring probably deals with uh, when we get further on down into the heart and, and the mercy we get shown what and are we to judge the, the former of the clay of who right. it is and that's, that's a very hard thing to submit to but it makes his mercy that much more appealing very good Brad we got another one up here um, it, uh, I love the idea and Tommy you can kind of mentioned this and you kind of fleshed this idea out like they should have been looking and the cool thing is there were Jews that were looking right and 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 were able to kind of recognize hey the Messiah is coming the Savior is coming uh, and we should be able to kind of recognize that uh, Bob and then I just noticed that that question was easily a thought property directly answered by what Paul was going back to uh, and revisiting chapter 8 verses 28 through 30 where in 28 he talked about those who love God, called to be his purpose uh, 29 verse of foreknown, yes, yes. Uh, conformed to Christ's image, verse 30 uh, predestined again, called justified, glorified he's talking about the same people mm-hmm. very good, yep, very good Once again, this is like my brain as I as I grow in, in the scripture and like redefining some of these things. Like when I think of the Old Testament, I automatically go to the Leviticus, the law, right, the old law, and that's kind of like. But it's more the history of the Messiah. You know what I mean? And as you look at people, and God wasn't necessarily shy about, hey, there's going to be a time <laughs> when I call someone other than you, and it's really, really incredible to kind of see like Paul teaching Jesus through examples in the Old Testament. And so, really, the, the true Israel are the ones that are called, right? Abraham had two sons. One was rejected. And the promise was, you know, and, and he says, and not only that, uh, but what about Jacob and Esau? I ch- you know, God chose one before they were even born, before they did anything right or anything wrong, Right? And so who is Israel? The ones that God chooses. And so then you, you immediately go, um, 
well, let's just <laughs> let's just go to uh, verse 14 and start reading because a natural conclusion might be: uh, uh, Is there injustice with God? Absolutely not. For He says to Moses, "I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion." So then it does not depend on human desire or exertion, but on God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this purpose I have raised you up, that I may demonstrate my power in you, and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So then God has mercy on whom he chooses to have mercy, and he hardens whom he chooses to harden. For sake of time, you know, I had said, uh, I often see people quote 9 through 14, and then also like down through 18 as you know, God kind of like forcing people to, to do or influencing people uh, to, to do those things like, I'm going to have mercy on whom I have mercy. But uh, what is the true context of what he's trying to say here? Right. But his point here is that God does not have to follow these rules that the Jews see and uh, think that he is obligated to uh, because they are descended from Abraham because they're circumcised. Um, you know, he has chosen to have mercy on those who have faith. That's the point of Romans, and that's available to them if they want it. Very, very well put. And really, that is what this chapter is about: is that is that God's sovereign choice. And you might see, well, well, if God's choosing, like, what part do I play in that? And he's about to answer that as well. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Very good. And, and once again, like, you know, the immediate conclusion is, well, then God's not playing fair. <laughs> He's God. You know, like, it's, you can't even play in this realm uh, when, it, when it comes to thinking about it. So why did God choose the nation of Israel? I don't know. It wasn't because of how good they were. It wasn't how brave they were or strong they were or anything like that. It was because God chooses. And he has that right to choose. Um, We'll get into it a little bit more. That It even goes beyond that. It's not just this arbitrarily choosing of a people. He chose people to specifically display both his mercy and his power. 
which is just incredible. Uh, to ha- I mean, obviously, he's a God without time, so he's able to see those things, but he made these choices that, so that he could show people who he is. Along that line, they did nothing special to become those people. Right. Uh, they had not, really nothing to do with it. Uh, God chose Israel to be his people so that he would be glorified. The nation of Israel itself was what? In, really insignificant in the world. It was small, not, you know, right. not powerful. Uh, and, and, and what did God do with them? He took this handful of small, nomadic people, weak, yeah. pathetic people, and protected them and made them a nation that would glorify Him. Very good. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, we have a hand back there as well. Yeah, and I think we we do probably um, underestimate, I don't know if that's the right word, God's sovereignty and yes. the fact that he has ultimate choice. It's his prerogative. Um, he is the creator. He exists outside of time and space. It's his prerogative to have time and space. And that's hard for us to wrap our minds around. Maybe something easier is blessed are the poor in spirit. Mm-hmm. Why did God choose the poor in spirit? Blessed are those who mourn. Why would God choose mourners? Why not victors? Um, those who are uh, not meek but strong? I mean, why would God have chosen those people? That's the kind of people he chose. Right. I think we take for granted his wisdom in doing that. And also his sovereignty that he could have chosen any group of people that he wanted, and he chose those who are poor uh, in spirit, who mourn, who are meek, hunger, thirst for righteousness, um, the merciful, pure in heart, and peacemakers. Very good. Yeah, we often look at his choices in uh, from our own perspective, and how does it affect me? <laughs> you know, and then I cry injustice because I feel like something was unfair. And I didn't exist before I was a thought in God's mind. In, in God's mind. Uh, yeah. He chose such humble, nobody people. Mm-hmm. And yet, they turned very arrogant. Yes. He chooses the mourners and the foreign spirit because they don't tend to have an arrogance issue. Entitlements can really be our downfall if we think we are better than Very good. And that's a good transition into in me kind of wrapping this up. Do you think, do you consider Job to have been an entitled person? Maybe a little? 
I mean, I only say that because you normally wouldn't associate Job with being entitled, right? I mean, he lived before God in such a way that... But God kind of had to remind him of, were you there when I was making all of this stuff? Like, as good as you are and as good as you can be, you still can't comprehend why I make the choices that I make. No matter how good you are, you'll never be able to question me. And so Paul kind of gets into this thing because he kind of brings up Pharaoh and how God will harden whom he hardens. Um, And so you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? I mean, I can't resist the will of God. If he chooses to harden me, then I can't resist that. But indeed, are you a mere human being to talk back to God? Does what is molded say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? Fortunately, we have a sense of injustice within us. I think that's a good quality. I think that's a quality that God gave us. But when it comes to calling injustice to the maker, that is something completely different, right? That's a perversion of the chain of authority here. Um, Has the potter no right to make from the same lump of clay one vessel for special use and another for ordinary use? But what if God, willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience the objects of wrath prepared for destruction? And what if he is willing to make known the wealth of his glory on the objects of mercy that he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people. And I will call her who is unloved, my beloved. In the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. So I love this because it kind of brings up this thing with Pharaoh. And, you know, we've always had that conversation. Well, did God make Pharaoh's heart, you know, heart harden and, and that kind of thing. And I think most of us kind of recognize that God knows man so well. He knows how you will react to a situation. Do you think God knew how the nation of Israel would react to Jesus coming? Yeah. I think he did. And I think that's why he said he was patient with, um, has endured with much patience the objects of wrath prepared for destruction. So in his choices, you see him making specifically choices so that he can show who he is to people. Both in a sense of awe, like destroying nations, also in a sense of compassion and mercy by calling people who weren't my people or were unloved my beloved. And so, Brad, you had mentioned the the Beatitudes. Like, why would you choose poor in spirit? Why would you? And that is the wisdom of God. And that shows that his choices are so far above us because he can make these things that we would normally not make decisions about and use them in incredible ways. And that shows his power. That shows his mercy. That shows his everlasting love. So his choices, like he's looking to demonstrate all of his qualities by the choices that we might consider unjust or poor choices. He can turn around and be glorified by the outcomes of those choices. It's really, really incredible uh, to see that. And 
to learn God is the best decision maker possible when it comes to these things. So, um, one of the last questions, uh, what would you say to someone who reads verse 21 and feels like they were made a vessel of dishonor? I've, I've heard or people maybe kind of take this out of context and he's like, well, does that mean he's made this group of people to be saved and this group of people he knows it's going to you know, be used for dishonor and be destroyed? And what if, I'm, what if I'm a person that was made for dishonor? You know, it kind of just feels like I was one of those people that like I'm made for destruction. And it goes back to, Bob, the point that you made uh, about it coming down to our choice. God recognizing that there will be people that reject him. He knows that. But it's still a choice. It's still a choice by you, and you are still a free moral agent um, to accept or to reject uh, God. And... um, I think it's, it's incredible as what I got out of this chapter once again and, and 10 and kind of studying through is how he is showing Jesus, the Messiah, <laughs> using the Old Testament. For me, that's kind of new. Maybe it's not for you, uh, but I'm starting to learn that what was context for them was all of the old history. It wasn't just the law. It was the experiences of all these people and whether they chose to have faith in God and that's truly who God called were the people that have faith in him. Um, and, and so it, it took on a new richness. I appreciate your comments. I think the, the next bell is about to ring, so we'll go ahead and wrap it up. And Chris will probably touch on the last, uh, last little bit of nine, and then we'll, we'll look at ten on Sunday. Thank you so much for your participation.